Let me just say this, that uh, we've been looking at the subject matter of joy, going through Philippians, and we will deal with the real joy to the world next week as we have our Christmas message, but we'll probably still touch a little bit on on Philippians during that message. But uh, we've tried to make sure that everybody understands the difference between joy and fun. And if you happen to be watching online or you're here and you would not consider yourself to be a follower of Christ or a believer in the Bible, I think you might find this message not only interesting, it might shock you. You might actually be shocked at what you're going to hear. Fun is something that happens when you come out of an amusement park and then dies five minutes later. Joy is the inner spiritual confidence that God's grace is sufficient to see me through my earthly pilgrimage. That's a mouthful, but that's a tagline from a number of years back. So we've been looking at this whole subject matter of what motivates Paul to have the joy that he has. Now keep in mind, Paul is being quarantined. Paul is in a prison. Paul is not at the Holiday Inn on Waikiki Beach. Paul is writing as an inmate to people outside how to have real joy. Paul is eating the food that rats eat. Paul might be cold or hot. There's no air conditioning or heating wherever he is. It's a dungeon that he is in. And he's chained to different guards from time to time. Paul is going through a very difficult time, and he is experiencing great joy. So he writes this prison epistle to those on the outside saying, let me explain to you what joy really looks like. Let me explain, explain to you how you can have that particular joy. So this is a journey for all of us. But again, I say, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you might be a little stunned at actually what Paul says brings great joy. So with that in mind, let's read the first three verses And then we will dive into the subject matter. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice, be joyful in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. We'll explain what those dogs are in a moment. This is before dogs were man's best friend. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, circumcision. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that today, uh, more than anything, there could be people here, there could be people watching, there could be people that have this message sent to them, that would understand what it really means, where this real, genuine source of joy comes from for all of us, for the believer and the unbeliever. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you the sweeping big picture before we dive into the text itself. Here's the the dogs and these mutilators of the flesh and so on. When Paul would go in to start a church or come back to see how the church was doing, Paul would have people that would follow him And they refer to those people as Judaizers. These were Jews that would come right on the heels of Paul and say, no, folks, no. Uh, This salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, no, no, no. You need to believe that. But in order to really become a Christian, you need to become a Jew first. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. So they were adding to the gospel. You want to get Paul upset? 
just add to the gospel. He wrote an entire epistle, Galatians. It's, it's a polemic. It's an argument. He's blistering mad that people have come in and exchanged the grace of God for a lie. All right? And so this is somewhat of what Paul is engaging in in this particular text here. But I wanted you to know who these dogs are, who these uh, mutilators of the flesh are. All these different statements that Paul is making are strong statements, very strong statements. Paul can get very heated at times when he writes. But he makes something so clear in this text that I want to make sure everybody understands the clarity of what he is saying and why he is rejoicing in the Lord. What could it possibly be that allows him to be quarantined in a prison, eating rotten food, living a miserable life, and telling people on the outside how to have joy? That's like a poverty-stricken person telling Bill Gates how to really be rich. That's exactly what it's like. You're telling me how to be rich? This, and it's, it's almost problematic because when it starts out in this section here, it says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he explains what that means, what that looks like, and what the source of that is. Rejoice in the Lord sounds like a, sounds like a cliche. We often say things, you know, chin up, just trust God, those types of statements. That's what this can sound like if we don't follow this very, very carefully. So he says, first of all, here he says, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things that I've written before again or talked to you about before. It is a safeguard for you. In other words, he has spoken to them something about this in the past. Now, when the gospel is messed with, when you really believe the gospel, you are able to tap in to joy for this reason. When you believe the gospel, you have the assurance that not only will life start making sense here, you'll understand why the world's in the condition that it's in, and you will know that you will one day be liberated from the mess of this world and live eternally in the kingdom of heaven. You know that. That brings joy. At least it should. If you don't know that, you are always attempting to do something to get right with God unless you're an atheist or an agnostic. And so if you're some kind of a religious person, no matter what the religion is, you are always trying to do something to get yourself right with God. And this is what Paul is arguing against. This is problematic. This will rob you of joy because you won't have the assurance of where you're going to spend eternity. It's a guessing game. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So Paul says in verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, circumcision. Circumcision was an act in the Old Testament that made you into the covenant relationship with, uh, with, with Yahweh, with God as a Jew. However, however, when you get to the New Testament, Paul says in Colossians, Christ is our circumcision. It wasn't some of his flesh that was cut away. All of his flesh was cut away. Therefore, those that are in Christ are fully circumcised. It's the circumcision of the heart, not the flesh. All right? 
And so Paul is going gonna, is gonna to just dive into this whole argument here. And then he has four things that he brings out in verse 3. Listen to what he says. For it is we who are the circumcision. We're the real ones that have been circumcised. Not you Judaizers that think it's just part of the flesh. It is we that are in Christ. Christ had all of his flesh circumcised at the cross. Christ has had all that rolled away. And those of us that are in Christ have been fully circumcised in that sense. It's the circumcision of the heart. We are now made right with God, not through a ritual, not through some ceremony, not by doing anything. So he lists four things, and he starts out right there. He says, for we are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. Well, what does that mean? Don't they think they worship by the Spirit of God? Not really. They think that by going in and going through all of the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices, that that is their worship to God. Yes, those were instituted. But even God himself said, it's a stench to my nostrils if you don't really understand what this really means. What it really means uh, regarding your true worship to me. And everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the one who is going to come and fulfill all the law. So he says, we are the, 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 of the true circumcision. We worship in spirit, the spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus. Our glory is not in our human goodness. Our glory is not in our religion. Our glory is not in how much money we give or how good we are. Our glory is in Christ Jesus. And again, I want to capture your attention if you're watching online and perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. This may shake you up, particularly if you're a religious person. It might even traumatize you as it did me when I first heard the words of the good news of the gospel. So follow along here. He says, he, he talks about this, this whole issue here, and he talks about, uh, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when he says no confidence in the flesh, let me define the term flesh for you, just so we're all on the same page. This is my flesh right here. Generally speaking in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, when it talks about your flesh, it's not talking about your physical body. It's talking about who you were in Adam because we all were born through the line of Adam before you came to Christ. It is talking about people that are trusting in their human goodness to get them into the kingdom of God. Your flesh basically is no good, all right? And he's trying to make that very, very clear. Your flesh is the problem. Not the physical here that I'm touching. It's the human heart, the condition of the human heart before a holy God. That's what he's dealing with here. So he says, I put no confidence in the flesh. What part of no don't we understand? He gets, goes out of his way to drive this home and who put no confidence in the flesh. And then he's, he, you know, as he, as he points this out, I want to pause for a moment. And I want you that perhaps do have a confidence in your religion or your human goodness. I want to I ask you a question. Try to imagine a straight line. And over here is zero. The worst person who has ever lived. They got nothing to offer at all. In the flesh, okay? Hitler, Nero, somebody like that. Over here is Mother Teresa. Now everybody looks up and says, that is a person that lived a good life. And so I would ask you, if you're trusting in your human goodness, 
Where on that line do you fall if, if you think that that's going to get you into the kingdom of God? Where would you put yourself? Well, you're not going to put yourself near Hitler. Are you going to snuggle up and get pretty close to Mother Teresa? When was the last time you were in India serving people and the poor? When was the last time you were in Calcutta? When was the last time you were in Bangladesh? You probably weren't. So how close are you going to get to Mother Teresa? Probably not very close from a human perspective. But now let's take a look at something. Now we want to put Jesus on that line. Is Jesus just a couple of notches above Mother Teresa? He is infinitely further along than Mother Teresa. Infinitely. So when Jesus turns around and looks back, he sees Mother Teresa, Hitler, me, you, the Pope, every, anybody, Billy Graham, all of us are, it's like looking at mountaintops, but you don't see the valleys. There are little differences in all of us in human goodness, but when God looks at it, there's none right, none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're in trouble. We're in real trouble. And that's the way he sees it. So if you're depending upon your humanness, your, your ability to do something to earn God's favor, think of the line. Just think of the line. Where would you put yourself? Where would you, would you be? Try to imagine this. Try to imagine you're, you're sending your child off to college. They've picked a school. Or maybe they're going to pay for it, whatever. And you find out it's $50,000 a year. $50,000. That's probably cheap today, but $50,000 a year. Okay? And you get there and uh, you go to the registrar's office or whoever you're talking to and they say, by the way, we don't tell you what the grading system is here. You will find out after four years. You will have invested $200,000, but we're not going to tell you what the grading system is. Just to let you know, an A could be 100 and a B 99. And a C, anything below 95 could be failure. I just want to let you know. I'm not saying that's what it is. I just want you to think about it. Would you invest $200,000? I wouldn't. And people are investing in their human goodness for something that counts for all eternity and they don't know what the grading system is. Let that sink in. 26 years of my life, I did everything I could. I went to church, I did this, I tried my best, I, I, everything. And I thought I was stacking up all this human goodness that I could display my spiritual letter sweater someday. You know, before, that's why I wore a sweater today. Uh, spiritual letter sweater before God, and he would be so impressed. He would be just so impressed. Try to imagine. Would you invest that kind of money in college if you had no idea what the grading system is? And if you're watching online, let me ask you something. If you're dependent upon how good you are, and you don't know what the goodness level is, you're not investing in college. You're investing in eternity. Eternity. Think about it. Would God, would God leave us a book that says, you better be good, but I won't tell you how good. What kind of a God is that? I gave a message way, way back at the very beginning called, when good works are bad. Good works are wonderful. Giving money is wonderful. Coming to church is wonderful. But if you think you're using that to earn your salvation, it's bad. When good works are bad. So let me be very clear. Paul is making it as clear as he can possibly make it in this. He is driving this home as hard as he possibly can. Now let's take a look. 
There are seven things that Paul brings out here, verses four and following. He says this, for though I myself have reasons for such confidence, he is saying, if you think you've got confidence, if you think Mother Teresa or Billy Graham have confidence in the flesh, you ain't seen nothing till you've seen my flesh. I've got grade A prime flesh. My flesh is as good as it can possibly be. Let me show you this sevenfold fleshliness that he brings out here. If anyone else thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's the day that you're to be circumcised. And by the way, there's a lot of scientific evidence as to why that's a good day to be circumcised, but we won't go into that. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I come through a beautiful bloodline. I come through, I, I come through that, that, the, the, the line of, of Israel. That's what I come through. I'm not just some Gentile out there. I come through the line. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel, and two of her children were Joseph and Benjamin. It was the, the Benjamin, that was the great tribe. That was the tribe, the elite tribe. He's saying, let me show you my pedigree. You think you've got something on me? Let me show you what I've got in the flesh. What I can offer from human, a human standpoint. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. <laughs> a Hebrew of Hebrews. Man, he is, he is boasting here on his flesh. If the flesh, if my religion, if my human goodness, if my pedigree could somehow get me into the kingdom of God or anybody into the kingdom of God, I've got it far better. As regards to the law, a Pharisee. What was a Pharisee? I thank God that I'm like other men are. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You know, in Luke 18, he stands before, you know, the, uh, the Lord and, and says, look at, look at how good I am. And then there's the publican who's a tax collector who's wicked and walks off and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the man. That's the man that's going to enter the kingdom of God rather than the other. Don't come bragging to me about your religion. Don't come boasting to me about all the good things you've done. Don't do that. That's when good works are bad. And so Paul lays all this out. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. He thought that was a good thing to wipe out the church because they were an enemy of, of, of Judaism. And so he, he was on his way to Damascus when he gets zapped by Jesus <laughs> has a traumatic experience. He says, listen, if, if you want to lay down your record of human goodness and you want to put it next to mine, not just my goodness, not just that I was a, a Pharisee, not just that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, man, I kept the law. And then he goes on, he says this, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He's not saying he's, he's perfect. He's saying I'm blameless. You could not find something in my human righteousness that you could point out that was really bad. I lived this life above reproach. Don't tell me about your Mother Teresa or your Billy Graham or whoever. Don't even go there. I'm way beyond them. Not just from the bloodline, but from all that I've done. The memorization of a good bit of the Old Testament. All the things that, that he understood. And he's saying, legalistic righteousness. He didn't say righteousness. Legalistic righteousness. I thank God that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm a wonderful person. 
See? That's legalistic righteousness. That's why D. James Kennedy, a pastor from a number of years ago, came up with two diagnostic questions for people. So let me ask this to you if you're watching online or here and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a follower of Christ. He used to say this, if you died today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? They will either answer yes or no. Pretty simple, binary, all right? Yes, I, I would go to heaven. Or no, I don't think I would. Or I'm not sure, whatever. You'd be something along that line. If you said yes, or whatever you answered, he would then say this. He would say, if you died today and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Now's the opportunity for you to say, I've put my total faith in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. He knows that person's a Christian as he's witnessing to them. If they say, yeah, I think, I think, I, uh, I think I'd make it. Why? And here we go. I go to church. I'm a good person. I, you know, I, I've never hurt anyone. That's the one I, I like. I, I've never hurt anyone. Really? You've never hurt anyone? Jesus said, he that believeth on me has, possesses now, everlasting life. In the King James, it says, he that believeth in me hath everlasting life. I had a professor at Bible college. Then he was sharing his faith with somebody. He would say, look at what it says. He that believeth in me hath everlasting life. And then he would look at them and say, do you hath it? <laughs> you either hath it or you don't. And then people would say, well, I, I think so. Let's read it again. He that believeth in me thinks he has everlasting life. No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? He that believeth in me hath everlasting life. Do you hath it? Well, I, I got, I'm getting there. Let's read it again. He that believe, and he would just do this and do this, and finally he'd go, I got it. I got it. He'd say, tell me why. Because I've put my faith in Christ. It is traumatic for the religious mind to dump all that they have been doing all these years and realize it counted for nothing. It is traumatic. This is why the human heart has so much trouble accepting the free gift of salvation. Because you're admitting that everything you've trusted in up to this point didn't count. For 26 years of my life, I had to openly admit it was a waste of my time. It was when good works are bad. And not only was it traumatic for me, I was angry. Not angry that I now have the free gift of eternal life. Angry that nobody ever told me. Angry that nobody had ever, ever once explained to me all the religious baggage that I had on my shoulders didn't count for anything until finally someone actually did. And it changed my life dramatically. But it was hard. It was not easy. It was not easy at all. Because if you've held to something, try to picture a Jewish person all of a sudden realizing that all the sacrifices and eating certain types of meats and all those kind of things don't count. They don't count. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, I don't care who you are. You want to you you match up to me? I'll show you. I'll show you what I've been through. You think you know about the law? I kept it. Look at, look at my life. And this is very, very hard. It's extremely hard for anyone that faces this reality. So he says this. He goes through all these different things. Then he says in verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider it 
loss for this. Not like, I've still got it. The Lord is going to, you know, he'll, he'll put it on the balance scales and we'll add Jesus to it and everything will be fine. Once Jesus steps into the picture, everything else is loss. It's gone from the asset column to the liability column. It isn't that it's just wiped away. It isn't that it's just loss. It's actually, get this word, evil. <gasps> he refers to these people as evil. He says those evil, those evil people. What, were they, what was the evil? They were preaching that good works and circumcision would help you get in. That was the evil. And yet there are so many things that people do that are wonderful things. They give money to their church. They help old ladies across the street. They go to church. They do this. They do that. And it's all good. But as soon as they're trusting in that for their salvation, it becomes bad. It becomes loss. It goes from the plus column to the minus column. It goes from the assets to the liabilities. That's exactly what he is saying here. It can't be any clearer. I have no confidence in the flesh. All those things I count loss. Can you imagine reading this for the first time? Particularly if you're Jewish or a very religious person. So he says, he said, whatever I profit uh, for the sake of, oh, he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. I consider it loss. Christ has to be absolutely everything in this. That's the, the whole issue. What it's more, I consider in verse 8, everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Old Testament, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags, that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. I say it again. The religious mind and the Christian mind Christianity is trusting in the finished work of Christ. Religion is trusting in finishing the work of Christ. And there's a huge difference. There is such a huge difference. So if you're watching online, or you're here today, and you've been very religious all your life, God bless you for doing what you thought was right. But you've got to come to the realization it wasn't. It counted for nothing. And that's all Paul is saying here. And keep in mind, Paul did far more than you did or far more than I did. And he had to consider all of that as loss. All of that. And he had lived up a life far beyond ours. Way, way beyond ours. So often a religion person has just enough morality to stay out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get into heaven. Just enough morality to stay out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get into heaven. It wasn't the bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was the good things. Think about it. It wasn't the bad things that kept him away from Jesus. It was the good things. Because he was trusting in the good things. And Jesus says, they're not good. No one's good. No one seeks after God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. Zero. And it's right here. Right here before our very eyes. Look down if you would. He says, he says in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God by faith by faith. I mean, how much clearer can he possibly be? I mean, he spells this out so clearly. He says, it's not the righteousness that comes from keeping the law or doing things, but it's the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. He, he just goes so far out of his way to explain to the religious mind that you cannot earn your salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. Otherwise, you'd be able to stand before God and boast. Like the Pharisee, I thank God, look at all the things I've done. Like Paul, he said, if anybody had the right to boast, look at me. And not only, not only look at all that I've done, it's far more than any of you have done, and I've had to chuck it all. I've had to count it as loss. I've had to count it as waste. I've had to count it as rubbish. The word is dung. Those are hard words. No wonder I said at the beginning, this can be traumatizing to a person that has spent their life trying to enter into the kingdom of God through their human goodness. Let's finish this up. Found in him, not having my own righteousness, comes by the law, comes by faith in Christ. The righteousness comes by faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And I think that somehow is, this is beyond my comprehension. But many, many places, Paul says, I know where I'll spend eternity, he gets it all. But he is saying here, he goes through this, this, this section here, and, and he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Let's pause with that for a moment. Daily, we find ourselves living in a world, just as Paul did, and we are always tempted to find power in something else. So let me just pause for a moment and talk to believers. Um, I can get up during the day and find my power in what I think I can do, uh, my power in, in, a, in, in uh, uh, an ability, or my power in this, or even looking at the world and thinking the world can, can maybe they can fix this, and, and he says, no, 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 no. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to be able to tap in to the very power that raised Jesus from the grave. Because that's what Scripture is talking about. That's where the joy comes from. It's understanding who I am in Christ, where I'll spend eternity, and learning to tap in to the power of the resurrection. In the Old Testament, the great miracle was the parting of the Red Sea. In the New Testament, it's the resurrection. They're not even to be compared. A man coming back to life, having paid the penalty for our sin. It's an incredible storyline. It's an amazing narrative starting all the way back in the book of Genesis. And the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the part we don't like. I don't, I don't know totally. I, I, I lean towards the idea that Paul is suffering for Jesus. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He knows that that, that suffering is taking place. And for him to be persecuted for Christ, he is, he is in fellowship with Christ's sufferings. Although Christ's sufferings were even greater, but he's in fellowship with that. It could also be, I think, 
just going through life, sicknesses, disease, hardships of, of life. And it's not so much that we're fellowshipping in the same way that, that Paul may be talking about in persecution, but it's fellowshipping in this realization that this world is fallen. It's a broken world. And you can look at it one way, I'm suffering, why do I have to suffer? Or you can look at it and say, you know, Jesus said, in this world you'll have persecution. Be of good cheer, I've overcome this world. In this world, you'll have hardship. In this world, there'll be difficulties. In this world, this is a fallen, broken world. And uh, all, anything can happen to any of us. But we can put a completely different look at it. We can look at it through the standpoint that Paul is in a dungeon rejoicing. He's rejoicing. He could have fallen into that pit, for all I know. If, if, if he wasn't taken in there, and he would still find a way to rejoice in just the natural sufferings of life. Because he says, rejoice in the Lord. And let me tell you what that looks like. No confidence in your flesh. None. If anybody has any reason to have confidence in the flesh, just take a look at my asset side. Just take a look. Yours doesn't compare. And guess what I found out? All those assets had to go over to the other side, their liabilities. All the time I was trying to get to heaven, I was actually moving myself further and further away. It wasn't the bad things I was doing, it was the good things I was doing. It was trusting in, in my human way. And so I just simply say to you, if you have never come to Christ, if you've never grasped this great truth, Here's something I do at least once or twice a year. I use my wallet because I saw this years and years ago and this is how my wife came to faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to watch and listen very, very, very carefully. Let my right hand represent you, me, and the entire world. Let my wallet represent sin. Man basically believes, I'll, I, I know I've done some things wrong. What I'll do is, I'll just turn the sin over and turn over a new leaf and I'll put some good things on top of it and mix it all up and it'll, it'll, I'll be fine. No, you won't. Even if you've only told one lie. As God says, not even one lie will enter into the kingdom of God. It's a perfect place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he, God, hath made Christ who knew no sin. You don't see any sin on Christ. Perfect. To become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. They just see what happened? It's the great exchange. Here is Jesus, absolutely perfect. Here you and I are sinful, sinful. We come to Christ and we say, oh Lord Jesus, I realize I'm a sinful person, I can't possibly save myself. I've been trusting in my human effort, my religion, my good works, giving money, doing all, and I realize that doesn't count for anything. I need your righteousness to get me in, not my righteousness. For God hath made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He took on our sin, he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The transfer is, all of his righteousness is placed to my account and all of my sin is placed to his account. That's a good deal. And I would take it. I would take it. Don't pass up a good deal. I don't even like to put it in those terms. We say, well, there's no free lunch. There is in this. There is in salvation. Salvation is free. 100%, no strings attached. 
If you have never put your faith in Christ, whether you're here or watching online, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pause for a moment and think, have I actually thought that I was good enough to stand before a holy God with my, all of my religious convictions and things that I've done? Where is the line? Where do I cut off the line for what human goodness is? Do I know what the grading scale is? Would I spend $50,000 a year to go to a school if I had no idea what the grading scale was? But I'm willing to, to put all my chips on the table regarding eternal life and I don't know what the grading scale is? It makes no sense at all. What does make sense is to put your faith in Christ as the one who paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin, died rose bodily from the grave to show that he had victory over that sin, over the grave, and offers eternal life to all of those who will simply believe that message. He that believeth in me hath everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, I don't know how to make it any clearer because you've made it so clear. It can't be any clearer that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. Our righteousness has to be your righteousness placed to our account. And Lord, anybody watching online or here today that has never put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they would trust the Lord Jesus Christ and have all of their sin placed on him and all of his righteousness placed on them. That they would pass from death unto life, be born again, enter into the kingdom. And so Father, as we sing this final number, we pray that as we would leave here today, we'd be encouraged we be able to rejoice in the Lord because of what you've done for us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.